I'm Baratunde Thurston, and this is Spit, an iHeartRadio podcast with 23andMe. Welcome back to Spit. This episode is all about pharmacogenetics. I want to learn what that word even means, but I know it has to do with precision medicine. And to help me dissect and understand all of these terms, I have three incredible guests. Dr. Julie A. Johnson, a doctor of pharmacy, a dean at the University of Florida College of Pharmacy, and a distinguished professor of pharmacy. That's a lot of pharmacy, doc. One of the ways to get the drug therapy right the first time is to have this genetic information. So we really are trying to think about how to advance that effort, that initiative, that story, which may actually help to, in some ways, close this health equity gap. Dr. Rick Kittles, PhD, is a professor and founding director of the Division of Health Equities within the Department of Population Sciences at City of Hope. He's also the co-founder of African Ancestry. You go to your grandmother's or your mother's, your aunt's house, and go in the bathroom and open up the medicine cabinet and all the medicine falls out. You're like, taking this and this and this and this? Right. And they're like, yeah, I have to take this for this and that. Precision medicine is supposed to take us directly to that drug that's going to be impactful and actionable and important for our health. And Roxanne Gay, also a doctor, I learned. A writer of multiple books, including Hunger, Bad Feminist, and Difficult Women. She's also the author of World of Wakanda for Marvel and a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. And she's written in particular about discrimination and disparities within healthcare, especially for women of color. So we're going to get into all of that. I think it starts with an acknowledgement of the harm that the medical community has done to populations of color, to fat people, to the disabled community, and recognizing that the problem exists. It becomes more and more serious as you look at the cancer rates that Black people are facing, the fact that there's very little research about what cancer does to our bodies because they don't even know. They also see Blackness as a monolith. They don't even understand that there are also variations within the Black community. Thank you, Roxanne, for joining. Thank you, Dr. Kittles, for joining. And thank you, Dr. Johnson, for joining. So I want to start with a little story of a drug called Plavix. Now, that is the commercial name for clopidogrel. Now, clopidogrel is a blood thinner. It has been prescribed in many cases to people for whom it did not work. And part of the reason it did not work is that they had a genetic profile that made it impossible for the drug to work. In fact, there were even deaths involved in the use of this drug. This falls under the topic that we're discussing today of pharmacogenetics. That is the intersection of drug treatment with genetics of various populations and why one size fits all isn't always the right way to approach medicine, certainly in prescribing drugs to people to solve some of their most critical illness issues. Dr. Johnson, can you walk us through what happened with this drug, with Plavix, and what pharmacogenetics actually even is? Because it's not a topic that most of our listeners, certainly it's not even a topic that I was very familiar with before we decided to do an entire episode on it. So Plavix is an interesting drug because we take drugs really that are of two sort of types. One is where the thing that you swallow or take by intravenous infusion or whatever is active. So as it's consumed, that is the active 
chemical, but for some drugs like Plavix, it has to actually be activated in the body. Okay. And in most cases, when that's the case, it's activated by enzymes in the liver that break it into a slightly different chemical form. So what a patient would take, the chemical that they would take in the pill form of Plavix doesn't have any activity. It doesn't prevent platelets from sticking together. Mm. So it has to be broken into this active form molecule. The issue or the challenge is that there's really one major enzyme in the liver that does that. And that enzyme is called cytochrome p 452 c 19 Is that a real um, name or did you just make that's that That's a real name. Okay. We abbreviated CYP2C19, which also sounds kind of funny to most people. The genetic variability in that gene results in about 30 to 35% of people who are of European or African ancestry either having a reduced or no function enzyme. So when at least 30% of the population take Plavix, then it basically can't be converted into its active form and it doesn't work well. When people who have had a heart attack or have had a stent after an angioplasty, if they have that genetic variation, then the medication just can't work well because you're not taking the active form. And so our group at the University of Florida, along with some colleagues across the country, began doing genetic testing for that particular gene or for the enzyme and then use that in the clinical setting. And when the physicians chose to essentially ignore that and still use Plavix in those people who have that variation, we showed that those individuals were more likely to have a heart attack, have a stroke, or to die. We feel like it's just a great example where a significant portion of the population really can't fully benefit from that medication, and we can figure that out pretty easily by genetic testing. I want to follow up on a couple of things you said. One is this idea that there are certain drugs that require the human body to activate the effect of that drug. I think of a pill or an injection as something you take and it does something to me. Like the magic right. is in the pill. Yep. And what yep. you've just described is, no, the magic is inside of me. And I, the <laughs> pill kind of brings it out of me. It catalyzes some effect. And in this case with Plavix, that wasn't happening for a significant number of people. The other piece is that you mentioned that there were physicians who learned about this effect on certain populations because of a genetic variability and yet still continue to prescribe the drug. That doesn't sound very scientific to me. So can you break down how that would happen? You have data that says some people have a reduced ability or zero ability to process this. Why would that continue to still be prescribed to folks? The good answers are that the other choices are much more expensive than Plavix. So a lot of places that might cost somewhere between 4 and $10. The other medications that would be the alternatives are a couple hundred dollars a month. So cost is definitely a factor in why they might still use Plavix. Some people will have side effects and may have increased risk of bleeding on the others. So they may go ahead and just stay with it and in a sense hope for the best, which frankly doesn't really make sense. And a lot of physicians feel like they want a very, very rigorously done trial and they want their cardiology guidelines to say, I need to do this. And otherwise they're not going to do it. That I think is the bad answer. I, I think that we do have a lot of evidence. Everything sort of lines up and makes sense. In some cases, there are reasonable explanations why they continued with Plavix. And in some cases, they just didn't want to, if you will, accept the evidence that was in front of them. Yeah. 
the evidence that's been in front of us as a society that comes to mind is the whole project of the human genome. I remember having an expectation that precision medicine, whether it's treatments or drugs or a whole host of medical resources, would be a bit more customized, personalized, targeted to me and not some generic model that some of these tools may have been designed for. So that was 2003. It's 2020. What's taken us so long to go from understanding the human genome to applying that understanding to prescribing drugs? Yeah, so I think there was a bit of overpromising. Francis Collins, who's now the head of the National Institute of Health and led the Human Genome Project, was overly optimistic about how fast things would happen. The reality is we do have to have evidence of where are those places in the genome that we can use in a predictive way in healthcare. And that has been more complicated and frankly taken more time than probably most people thought. But we really are, I think, at a point, especially as it relates to medications, where we do have a lot of opportunities now to use genetic information to make better decisions for an individual. What is the right medication or what is the right dose of medication? What are we to do? And this is really to both doctors on the panel here, Dr. Johnson and Dr. Kittles. There's a lot more genetic information that many of us have about ourselves. What are patients to do in terms of making sure that they're getting the best recommendation about what drugs they should be assigned based on some genetic information they might have about themselves? I think in many ways for pharmacogenetics, which is just sort of a piece of precision medicine, I see patients as being in a position to really push physicians and other healthcare providers to embrace this because it's about them. It's about really their very personal information. So I think they can really be drivers of change in this situation. And it's not every medication, but you can't make broad statements. The good news is the things that we may have used in the past, your skin color, your gender, your body size, those we can maybe pay a little bit less attention to because we have more specific information that we can use to help make some of those decisions. Yeah, I completely agree with what Julia was saying. The issue is having a relationship with your physician. So often we don't advocate for our health enough. Whether we have the genetic information or not, we need to be more engaged. If we do have the genetic information, then we can say, hey, look, we can utilize this to make better uh, clinical decisions and partner with your physicians on that. Roxanne, you've written about relationships with doctors, Mm. in particular in your book, Hunger. I remember you citing in, in several instances this Hippocratic oath that doctors do have this oath to first do no harm. But in your case, you found that that was not always followed Can you express some of your experience in maybe being pushed by doctors or not taken seriously enough in some ways? Well, I think a lot of doctors have very specific ideas about how patients should live their lives, what their bodies should look like. They oftentimes will ignore evidence of health because a patient is fat. Their only medical advice, whether you go in for a sore throat or a stomachache, is to lose weight as if that's going to help your throat glands. It's incredibly frustrating that there are a great many people in this country who are fat for whatever reason and cannot get adequate medical care because they know that if they go to the doctor, they're not really going to be treated. They're not really going to be believed or heard. That creates a whole new set of problems. And then people say that fat people are 
overly sick. But the reality is that fat people just don't go to the doctor until they have to go to the doctor. Mm. It becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. It's a real problem. And fat bias is significant in the medical community. It's definitely something that we have to resist as often as possible. You mentioned fat bias, and I think bias in general emerges in the medical field. I think I've told this to our listeners before, but my mother herself had hesitance in going to doctors. Good reason for that hesitance. Some of her complaints were not taken seriously. She ended up passing away from colon cancer. That's not a direct line, but it certainly was a contributing factor to late diagnosis because her earlier medical professionals didn't hear her and hear what she was trying to say about what was happening inside of her body. We're holding these two ideas at the same time. This idea that a patient is an advocate for themselves, that we have more advanced medical information available about ourselves to bring to the table. Also, that the medical establishment is contending with some issues of bias, not fully seeing patients as agents of their own future. Dr. Kittles, I feel like this is where you come in and help us out, man, because there is so much possibility and so... So much promise. So much promise. So much promise. Thank you. That's yes. exactly what it is. There's enormous promise with precision medicine. For somebody like me, I get really, really excited about it because I think about, we all know the story. You go to your grandmother's or your mother's, your aunt's house, and you go in the bathroom and open up the medicine cabinet and all the medicine falls out. You're like, gosh, you're taking this and this and this and this. Right. And they're like, yeah, I have to take this for this and that. Precision medicine is supposed to take us directly to that drug that's going to be impactful and actionable and important for our health. Uh, the problem, though, is that we've been ignoring for so long the issue of diversity in clinical trials. There's never been any action to try to resolve it. Mm. As the science has improved, we've left communities behind. And it's not just racial demographic communities. It's also poor communities and isolated communities. We really need to think about how can we really impact and make precision medicine equitable across all populations. One of the consequences of the lack of diversity in clinical trials is this example with Plavit. You see what I'm saying? Where we find later on that a large portion of the population is not responding to this because of polymorphisms or, or these genetic variants that are evident. Had we have known that earlier, there would have been an opportunity for the drug companies to say, hey, this might work for this particular group. And that's what precision medicine is about, targeting particular individuals. But we also need to develop something that's going to work for another subset of the population. That's what it's about. That's the responsibility of pharmaceutical companies, also the government, too, to make sure that we all have equal access and opportunities to improve our health, the science and the technology. Speaking of uh, equal opportunity, Dr. Kittles, you two have a relatively recently published study that mm -hmm. kind of looks at ethnic diversity in right. data sets around some of these programs. What did you find in this study? Well, as someone who studies health disparities, one of the challenges for us has been the lack of diversity in databases and biorepositories. For the most part, the bulk of those data sets are homogeneous. Can I just pause you for definition? Mm -hmm. A biorepository. <laughs> <laughs> so a biorepository is sort of like a freezer full of samples, okay. whether they're tumor cancer samples or different tissue samples or blood or DNA so that researchers can do research. Right. Now, if you're doing disparities type research, you want to get samples from diverse populations. You'll say, oh, well, I think that this drug or this receptor on this cell acts differently in the context of being, let's say, African-American or, or European or Asian. But we don't have that diversity in our samples. 
And that goes back to this issue of enrollment of subjects in biomedical research and the just turning our back on communities because it's hard. Yes, it's hard to recruit and enroll different people in research. And it should be hard because Mm -hmm. you have to show them that not only do you care, you have to build that trust. A lot of them want to see themselves in that research. Right. And so it takes some time. And if you're being honest, you're going to have to give up some of those rights that you think you're going to have downstream. But in terms of the study we did, we looked at some commonly used cancer cell lines that cancer researchers use for their research. Many of these were commercially available and sold as either African-American or Hispanic or European ancestry. We typed them for genetic ancestry using some ancestry informative markers. These are markers that allow us to differentiate ancestry. And we found that there were several of these cell lines that were advertised and sold as African-American that were not of African descent. They were European. So that had consequences because guess what? For years, researchers were buying these cell lines from this company. They were using it in their research and they were publishing that data. Wow. And some of them had some significant findings that were published in the context of disparities. And that's wrong. Yeah. Dr. Johnson, as you do so much work down at the University of Florida, how do you and your team try to expand the range of diversity and the various data sets you're working on within the kind of pharmacogenetic universe? I would say we really have a couple of groups that we focus on. We've been very intentional and my work really started trying to understand differences in response of blood pressure medications between Mm. blacks and whites. So we have a long history of enrolling diverse populations, but we all also live in a fairly rural part of Florida. And so we're really beginning to also reach out to these diverse populations that are medically underserved, may not be easily connected, not really part of the healthcare system, certainly not part of the research enterprise historically. I think the National Institutes of Health has really begun to push in much more aggressive ways to get researchers to really focus on enrolling diverse populations. And I'll use one example. We're getting ready as part of an NIH network to start a trial. So there's a genetic variation that occurs only in people of African ancestry. And it turns out it's linked to risk for kidney disease and renal failure in people who have high blood pressure. This has been really interesting. And my colleague in Mount Sinai in New York City has done a lot of work on this. When they talk to populations about doing a trial, which would only enroll people who are self-identified Blacks, about how they felt about doing this genetic study. And there was, you know, some people said, oh, you can't focus only on that population. And they're like, what? Are you kidding? We have been, in a sense, blamed because we have higher rates of kidney failure. People say we don't take our medication. And there's really genetics that underpins that. There are going to be more and more examples where having information about genetics helps us understand things that we just haven't understood in the past. How do we get to the point where trust is reestablished or established in the first place among many of these communities who need to participate? Roxanne, you describe fat people being blamed for their health outcomes when doctors are only seeing fat and not other parts of someone's life. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling system where the outcomes are actually less healthy. If you look at a community of African-Americans as an example, well, we need more African-Americans in the clinical trial stage 
but they're not really trusting of the medical establishment for various historical reasons. The self-fulfilling prophecy is those pharmacogenetically sensitive drugs won't take this population into account. There's a cycle here that needs to be broken. How do we do that? Well, I mean, I think it starts with an acknowledgement of the harm that the medical community has done to populations of color, to fat people, to the disabled community, and recognizing that the problem exists, that when especially black women talk about their health concerns, they aren't believed. Mm -hmm. There are cases of this time and time again. And you look at our maternal mortality rate, for example, you see that when black women go to doctors with concerns about their pregnancy, they're largely ignored. We lose our children at an alarming rate. We have to acknowledge that this harm has been done before we can even begin to remedy it. Unfortunately, I don't think that a lot of the medical establishment even understands that this harm is being done. It becomes more and more serious as you look at the cancer rates that black people are facing. And the fact that there's very little research about what cancer does to our bodies because they don't even know. They also see blackness as a monolith. They don't even understand that there are also variations within the black community. And it's because we don't understand that these variations exist even within the black community we're not getting adequate health care. I think once we see that the medical community genuinely understands that there's a problem and that we will be believed, we might be more willing to go to the doctor. It's really going to start with that. Yeah. What other steps could be taken by folks in various populations or in the medical establishment to make sure that the benefits of things like pharmacogenetics are spread to I, all? I, I, actually, I'm not as optimistic as I used to be. Oh, that's so. wonderful. <laughs> Thank just, you. I'm just, you no, I just want to point out that you said that with such cheer no, and I, such energy. I thought, because, I thought a positive because, statement was about to come no, out no, of your because, mouth. Because we dance around this, this elephant in the room. So let's just get to the point. Precision medicine is big science. Big science costs money. Whenever you have a situation that is economic underpinnings, you're going to have haves and have-nots in this country because of capitalism, right? Yeah. Short of there being legislation that allows for equal access and opportunity, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. It's like one of the biggest wars that we fought, we're still fighting, is healthcare in this country. This is a big part of that. Right. If you remember with the Affordable Health Care Act, there was a part in there, a huge chunk of it was on prevention. It got dumbed down to the point where, oh, we're just going to do some research. We're going to throw out some money to some institutions across the country to recruit people. Hopefully they'll reach their numbers. Some people oversampling Native Americans, some are oversampling African Americans, Asians or whatever. But in the end, from what I've seen, in the end, what happens is we have a huge data set and there's still no diversity there in the data set. Now I'm hoping that that doesn't happen with this precision medicine initiative, this NIH funded all of us campaign, which I'm sure everybody's heard of. Uh, I hope that doesn't happen, but there is a strong possibility it could. Yeah. Because we have not dealt with the economic component to all of this. And then also the trust, right? There's people out there that are doing really good jobs engaging the community. The folks in Florida, Julie has done this for years. They have relationships with clinics and hospitals and community groups. Uh, but th there are groups that just have not even cared about those communities that surround it. I'm going to fish for a little sign of hope. Have we made any progress in that direction in your experience? I think we've made progress. <laughs> I get excited about the science and the technology. I get excited about engaging my community mm -hmm. about this and getting them excited about it. What happens is once it gets to the level of 
the physicians, the drug companies, and insurance companies. That's where a lot of activity needs to be. We really need to be lobbying to make sure that we get access to this stuff. Yeah. Because communities are going to suffer. In the end, precision medicine may increase disparities instead of the potential that it has to decrease disparities. Think about what I'm saying. I have thought about it. I have processed so, it. So, I so you, you. Started, you, started, <laughs> you started the conversation by saying that you go to the doctor with your DNA, with your Google. You know, uh, I looked up something on right. WebMD. I, I got an itch. Right. Here's what it is. I've already diagnosed it. Doc, can you just validate my feelings? Right. But most people <laughs> right. in our community don't, don't have that. They don't have that information. Right. Nor the relationship with their physician. Because some of them don't even have primary care physicians. Their engagement with healthcare is in the emergency room. We need to think about that as we talk about disparities. So I think about disparities not just as this biology or biological difference, but is a systematic social justice issue. Dr. Johnson, I feel like this can be connected to what you're doing with the Ignite Network. Can you break down what that initiative is, what that work is? The Ignite Network is funded by NIH, by the Human Genome Research Institute, and it's really focused on trying to advance precision medicine into clinical practice. They're very intentional about enrollment of diverse populations, so there were two different versions of the grant, and you had to guarantee enrollment of at least 35% or at least 75% diverse population, which obviously is sort of very different than, you know, our historical, typical enrollment into clinical trials. And that's really to try to address some of the issues that Rick's been talking about. We're going to be launching in the near future four clinical trials. One is the one I just mentioned that will look in people with high blood pressure, African-Americans with high blood pressure, and looking at this genetic marker for risk for kidney disease to try to figure out if that causes the physician to be more aggressive about managing that patient's blood pressure to see if that helps the patient feel empowered, if you will, to take control of their blood pressure management. Now we're going to be doing three pharmacogenetic trials. One will be focused on use of opioids, so using genetic information to guide opioids in the setting of chronic pain. One will be to guide use of opioids in the setting of elective surgery, which it turns out is one of the most common causes of people becoming dependent on opioids is they have a surgical procedure, they get a prescription, and they sort of get hooked. And then the third one is going to be focused on genetic guidance for antidepressant therapy. Those are all going to launch within the first six months of 2020. When this stuff is applied in the right way, the opioid one is very compelling because of how significantly it's ravaging this nation right now. In a world where you've got more pharmacogenetic approaches to prescribing opioids, how are things different We've done pilot studies in both that surgical setting and the chronic pain setting. In the setting of chronic pain, we showed that you can get better pain control with a genotype-guided approach. And, and interestingly, in many of those patients, we didn't use a more potent opioid that isn't affected by the genetics. But what happened in many patients is that I think it gave the physician and the patient the confidence to try something different, meaning that they tried 
something like Advil or Naproxen. <laughs> so they actually, yeah. in some ways, stepped down the therapy, but it just allowed both of them, the healthcare provider and the patient, to sort of say, mm-hmm. ah, so this hasn't really been working. It didn't seem like it was working. Maybe it's not working because of genetics. Let's just try something that doesn't even involve opioids. That was a really interesting finding. What we're seeing in the acute pain or in the post-surgical pain management is that in the genotype-guided approach, we may actually be using less opioid and getting the same pain control. And it may be an element of just making the patient comfortable. So it's possible there's a bit of a placebo effect that they just feel like this is the right course of therapy for me. But we think there's lots of real effect there. So we're excited about the opportunities there. Now, the the challenges are, and I share Rick's excitement for the future in terms of research is, continuing to find the other genetic markers that may help us identify patients who, for other reasons, aren't going to respond well to those medications or patients who are at risk for addiction to those. There's a lot of work to do. There's a lot we can do already. Roxanne, a random question for you, but I've been thinking about your answer to the question, how do you establish or reestablish trust? And the first step you said was acknowledge the historical harm. And I think That's in precision medicine, that's in medicine, that's in economics, that's in property, that's in education, that's life. Is there a need for medical reparations? (laughs) And I say that semi-jokingly, but also to get post-acknowledgement, what would it look like to proactively involve communities that have been historically ignored or divested from or overlooked? I don't think that's a bad idea. However, tongue in cheek, it might. Okay, good. We have an endorsement for medical reparations from Roxanne Gay Market. (laughs) I think that it would be really useful, whether it's universal health care, which everyone is owed, or getting a break on prescriptions, because I must tell you, the cost of drugs in this country is breathtaking. Every time I I look at the bill, I just think, hmm, okay, all righty. How is someone who doesn't have money supposed to pay this? Like, for example, my mom's cancer drug this month is $15,000. And And that's with insurance. No, well, she's um, over 65, so she's on Medicare. And they don't cover prescription drugs. And so we're going to have to pay that every month for a year. And that's a house. And so reparations might begin by giving people adequate healthcare and including prescriptions. And it would be making sure that we are providing more equity in terms of who gets to become a doctor and spreading that more equally across the country. Because in Miami, there are a lot of doctors of color, whether they're Latino or black or Asian, South Asian and so on. But when you go to more rural places and toward the center of the country, you will see Asian and South Asian doctors, but you will not necessarily see black doctors or Latino doctors, Native American doctors. And so we have to find a way to make sure that people can go to medical school without assuming an unbearable amount of student loan debt and then make sure that there are job opportunities for them across the country. All of that could be part of a reparations package. You have to sort of think not only about the patient, but the doctors, because they're all educated in a very specific way. And then they keep pushing that education forward. And it's not serving anyone well at this point. Yeah, I like that. I like that idea. Medical reparations. It's a great idea. (laughs) I thought you did. I I would start first with a sickle cell. I think in five years, we're going to actually have a cure, if not a cure, something that uh, these individuals are going to be alleviated of their pain and suffering you know, throughout their life. Okay. 
I'll give a classic example. Two drugs that have just been approved that patients have to take for the rest of their life. It's not a cure, but Mm -hmm. it's something that takes care of the symptoms and all the issues, the the physical issues with the consequences of sickle cell. But it costs $100,000 a year. Back to the house. If it costs as much as a house, it's not really accessible. So, And these are the best promising drugs at this moment. I mean, there's other things. We can do stem cell transplant, but that's also very expensive. And that's a curative sort of therapy. And then also there's some gene therapies that are emerging. So I, I see the landscape in the next five years or so as being really promising for those suffering from sickle cell disease. However, I would put them high on the list for some level of government reparations. <laughs> because if you think about the history of sickle cell, it wasn't until communities, for instance, out west, out west, I'm here now, right? <laughs> Oakland, LA, Detroit, Chicago started these health clinics and started testing for sickle cell and, and being advocates around sickle cell, the Panthers, I'm talking in particular. It wasn't until all of that started to bubble up before the government said, hey, you know what? We're going to legislate this sickle cell act or whatever. And then things just shot up in terms of awareness and at least acknowledging that this is a major problem for African-Americans in this country. So what emerged from that? One drug, hydroxyurea, and then nothing else really since then. And now we see this increase in therapies that are actually going to be impactful. So it's an exciting time. And this is all part of this precision medicine story. But my feeling is when I saw the price of those two drugs is that that is freaking outrageous. If you look at the approval in the last five to 10 years of drugs by the FDA, the number that either have some sort of targeted element, genetic information that predicts who's going to respond well, or they're actually gene therapies, that has been on just this really impressive upward slope. And that really is this precision medicine approach. But there's no question that the downside challenge for those drugs that are being developed for specific genetic populations have a price tag in many cases that's just not sustainable, not going to allow that to, to really be widely used. There was a new gene therapy for really a a, a horrible genetic disease that typically results in the death of a child around age two. The first dose in the world was given here at the University of Florida. It's $2.1 million. Now, the good news is it's a once in a lifetime dose and they believe will allow these children to perhaps grow to adulthood and you can't put a price on that. But the cost of our healthcare system is certainly a challenge. On the flip side, as it relates to pharmacogenetic testing, that's pretty cheap, honestly. You can probably do that most places for $100 to $250, and it's good for your lifetime because that information is not going to change. We have a postdoctoral fellow on our training grant looking at whether the rural and underserved and minority populations actually might derive more benefit from pharmacogenetic testing. And her data really suggests that that might be the case. She found they are more likely to be on the drugs that we can use genetic information to guide, and they go to the doctor less often. We've talked about that a bunch already. And so when you put those together, what that means is you really need to get it right the first time. And one of the ways to get the drug therapy right the first time is to have this genetic information because we think that the underserved population might actually see the greatest benefit. And so that part is exciting and it is manageable from a cost perspective. Right. We have a place we can start and and start having an impact right away, which is really good to hear. We've been talking about precision medicine 
pharmacogenetics, health equity. Is there a story or a subject or a topic or even a, just a note that anyone wants to make sure to get in this episode? You know, I have an interesting story, and um, this is a, a paper that was written by one of my uh, a postdoc that I shared with a, another colleague when I was in Chicago. We looked at this drug called naltrexone, which isn't really used much anymore, but uh, at the time it was used for alcohol abuse okay. and uh, smoking uh, cessation. For a long time, people had known that African-Americans didn't respond well to this drug. It was more active and, and there was an actual response in individuals of European or Asian ancestry, but mm-hmm. not African-Americans. Got it. They've known this for a while. So uh, there was a smoking cessation trial that was done in Chicago, and we actually got access to those samples and uh, typed ancestry for the African-Americans because we wanted to see if, in fact, if that difference in response was due to genetics and genetic background. Right. And so for the, the group of African-Americans, it was a little over 100. We typed ancestry and then stratified the analysis such that they were African-Americans with high European ancestry mm-hmm. and then low European ancestry. And so if you know, the distribution in ancestry for African-Americans is pretty broad. I mean, some of us have whites in the immediate family structure and then others are distant or even none. So right. the variance there in the black community is quite broad in terms of genetic ancestry. So when we stratified based on ancestry, we found that those African-Americans that had higher European genetic ancestry actually responded just like whites did, Mm. right? And we were kind of excited about it because what we said was, wow, this is one step in the direction because at some level people were saying, maybe we shouldn't prescribe this to African-Americans. And you're like, hashtag not all African-Americans. Right, 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 (laughs) exactly. And and there are other drugs that the same story goes, you know what I mean? This applies to. And so I think this is why I get excited about precision medicine and in particular also genetic ancestry analysis, because it's taking us one step in the direction towards identifying those subpopulations so that we can prescribe the drug at the right time at the right moment. And there's more efficient clinical decision making. Really. Yeah, that's a good story. That's a good one. I like that. We've been talking so much about genetic ancestry, populations, variants due to populations and There's a dark side to this discussion that's happening and which has to do with genetic determinants of positive things like intelligence. And so I I have these two scientists here in particular who work with genetics and the distribution of across different populations. And you actively want to encourage people of particular racial backgrounds to get involved in clinical trials and get their genetic data into the system to make better drugs. And so how do you hold all that while at the same time not embracing or giving room for the ideas of genetic supremacy. And if we can determine a drug based on race, why can't we determine IQ based on race? I, I can see that in a Reddit forum right now. Right. Someone listens to this episode. Right. So, so the issue of genetic determinism, you know, it goes back to this whole issue of racism, right? Where you have these racially identified groups and you place some level of value on it. And so it's the same thing at the genetic level, right? Many of those phenotypes that you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, IQ and beauty, whatever, whatever it is, I call it, whatever. Athleticism. Athletic, right. There's a distribution for all of those different phenotypes, right? And across all populations. I just find it interesting when somebody says people of African descent have less IQ or lower IQ, then they raise it as a genetically determined sort of uh, feature of the population. But if you look at the distribution of any trait in Africa, it's the broadest across the board for any community across the world. Hmm. Mainly because African populations have been the oldest. That's where humanity started. 
So you can look at variation and see the worldwide distribution pretty much within Africa. Right. So if one were to say, oh, well, African descent people are dumber. Well, then also you can also say African descent people are much brighter too because of that distribution. Do you see what I'm saying? I do. How one interprets that distribution is where all of this debate has been uh, around. But I just find it interesting because we can talk about blood pressure. We can talk about some of these biomarkers for cancer, like PSA for prostate cancer. We can talk about a lot of these different traits and, and phenotypes and see that the distribution of those are very broad within Africa because of the fact that humanity started in Africa. The populations have been around longer. And so the genetic components to those traits are pretty broad. Yeah. And so there is no sort of this restriction of intelligence. <laughs> Anything to add on this one, Dr. Johnson? I think that there's a misperception that a lot of things have this pure genetic influence. And even things like high blood pressure, which a lot of people can say, oh, yeah, high blood pressure runs in our family. They're not surprised that there's a genetic basis. It explains about 30 or 40 percent of your risk for high blood pressure. For other traits, frankly, I'm not aware of anything in the literature that links intelligence with specific genetic markers. And then if we look at high blood pressure and we say, OK, let's look at the genes that explain high blood pressure. We can explain about 4 percent of the variability. Sometimes there is an over-interpretation of what we can explain with genetics. This is where the pharmacogenetics is really interesting because we can explain in many cases 20, 30, 40, 50% of the variability in response with genetic information for diseases, except for diseases like sickle cell, a monogenic disease, a disease caused by one gene. Most traits, height, eye color, those are caused by multiple genes. And sometimes we don't make clear that most of the things that we think about, like Rick said, have a broad distribution in the population, but genetics doesn't explain all of it, right? I think that People would be surprised in some cases how little we can explain at this point with genetic information. So I can't say you're going to have high blood pressure because of your genetics. That's just not possible. We just don't know enough. We can determine that much better by asking if your mom and dad and aunt and uncle and grandparents had high blood pressure. So I think that we just have to make sure that we tell the story properly. Well, that is exactly what we're trying to do here. Just uh, tell the story properly. I want to Thank you for helping us do that, Dr. Julie Johnson, Dr. Rick Kittles, Dr. Roxanne Gay. I want to thank all of you uh, for showing up. You're welcome. Thanks. Thank you. Want to dig in more on today's topics and guests? Check our show notes. And if you enjoyed the episode, share it with a friend, all your friends, and be sure to leave a review. If you want more surprising stories about how we're all related, Search and follow Spit on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Spit is an iHeartRadio podcast with 23andMe. I'm Baratunde Thurston. You can find out more about me at baratunde.com or on social media wherever Baratundes are found.